welcome to another exciting edition of Words, Images, and Worlds. Always delighted to be talking with someone working in the field of literacy research and thinking about uh, what works best for young people, for learners around uh, different spaces. And so delighted to be talking with Dr. Manica Brooks. Manica, thank you for jumping in and thank you for bringing Paddington with you. Thank you. Yes. I always say he's better than Winnie the Pooh. So he's my favorite bear. <laughs> we, we have your marmalade crowd. We have your honey crowd. It's it's an ongoing debate. Everybody. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I have followed your work for some time and find it to be really inspiring, really helpful, and really practical. And so I'm looking forward to talking through some of the topics that you have looked at, but also the topics that you're currently exploring. And by means of a first question, I know that a lot of listeners out there are educators. And so I'm curious about your background in education and uh, your history as an educator. Yeah. So I got into education. I would say it's always been a big part of my life. Like I was always in mentoring and teaching and all of that stuff when I was in high school. And so when I was in undergrad, I was working at, um, in a in a housing projects in their in their after school center so <laughs> i started out kind of doing mentoring and teaching there and my very first job in education was actually not a good job it was i worked for a for profit college <laughs> because i thought well maybe everyone's pathway isn't through traditional you know um post secondary university education it was one of those schools that would overcharge students to get a aviation's mechanics degree. And so when I realized what they were doing and I thought it was unethical and they were taking advantage of people, I actually quit because I realized like, oh, this isn't what I thought. I thought I was going to be working as like a counselor for new students, helping guide them through the program. And I realized it was like a veiled sales position as like a retention uh, person. Mm-hmm. So then I became a long-term substitute in an English the second language class when I went back and I got my um, credential in social studies in secondary bilingual education. So it was like a bilingual social studies um, d degree. And then after teaching ESL as a long-term substitute, then I went to Costa Rica. I taught English there for a little bit. And then I came back and I taught history to students that were identified as English learners. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also worked in um, like after school literacy programs and things like that. Um, and then when I went back to um, to do my PhD, I stayed working in after school literacy programs because it offered a kind of flexibility in terms of how you can work with students that like mm -hmm. kind of classrooms didn't. And then when I finished my doctorate, I actually ended up working in the writing center so then I worked with um with graduate students, you know, on their writing. So it's kind of I've worked from elementary school all the way to people who are completing their PhD. I love it. I love that range. Love that range. Yeah. Yeah. Now you've written uh you worked on a meta-analysis about reading interventions that was published in 2021. So thank you for that work. And thank you for the excuse to use the word meta-analysis on the show. <laughs> yeah. Checking that off my list. Um, 
So I really love the way you foreground identity and agency for young learners. I'm curious about what you would share with teachers about those elements. I, I'm an English teacher, as I mentioned, by day and a podcaster, apparently, in the evenings and weekends. And so, uh, of course, reading intervention is something that we talk about a lot. Um, so curious about what you would share from that work. Yeah, so I think I was really excited, um, you know, Kate Frankel, I worked on that project with Kate Frankel and Julie Learned and Kate kind of led the project. And so what's what's interesting about like the whole project of doing uh, metasynthesis is that it draws in qualitative research. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that gets overlooked in the discussion of effectiveness. And so let me take a step back. So I know that I might be talking to people or people might be listening and they still have a range of backgrounds and research methods, right? So quantitative research primarily focuses on numbers and kind of like statistical mm. analysis of things. So what you're looking at are things that can be measured by numbers, right? Mm -hmm. And you can, in order to measure things by numbers, you have to conceptualize or think about things in certain ways, right? And when you're using um, ways of looking at things that are not measurable by numbers, then you have the freedom to look at it a different way. And, you know, as I would say, every ethical and equitable researcher would say, you need both. You need qualitative research and you need quantitative research and you need mixed methods research that brings them both together. The thing with reading interventions and particularly when we're talking about reading interventions, we're talking about standalone classes that are mm -hmm. not, we're not talking about like reading, in, like maybe a reading intervention that happens during a class where you're working on a specific ability or something, a standalone class where often it's a computerized like read 180 or achieve mm -hmm. 3000 or whichever kind of program of the day it is. And it's separate from an, a content area class. And it's usually in the, in place of an elective. Mm -hmm, and so okay. when we're talking about the effectiveness of these courses, often they're driven by numbers. Like, well, how well did somebody do on a particular assessment after that, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that gets missed about those numbers, well, even the numbers say that reading intervention doesn't really necessarily help in those forms in the long term, but that's a whole nother conversation. But what gets missed is the voices of students and their experiences in the classroom, like, well, what does, how does reading intervention make you feel? What are you actually learning? Um, what are your experiences in reading intervention? So the metasynthesis allowed us to bring together that and kind of say, here, take this in conversation with the quantitative research about, you know, what we know about reading intervention courses. Yeah, yeah. But I, my background is in qual as well and qualitative work. And so getting to hear the stories, getting to hear the experiences, um, getting to hear student voices and what they experience and what seems to work best is just such an important part of the story as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because I just, I accidentally like, so Kate and Julie, who I worked with, their initial research was about reading intervention when they became researchers. Mm -hmm. For me, I fell into it by accident because in the process of studying or working with students that are classified as English learners in high school, a lot of them just ended up being placed in reading intervention. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and then I started meeting students who had been in Read 180 for like four or five years. And 
it was like, well, what does it mean when you're limited to this one library mm-hmm. for four years? You're in the same program. You do the same thing over and over again. Like, what is the purpose of it? You know, and what did, how did students, they're missing out on an elective that would otherwise be engaging in school. And what does that mean for them? And they were very vocal, right? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember working with a middle school student who, um, lost not one but two electives uh, for math intervention and reading intervention. And that makes for just a real slog of a day. I I had this student at the end of the day, and you could tell that it was just uh, a lot of burden, a lot of academics, a lot of intervention to have to navigate and try to sustain his way through. Yeah. Yeah. And like, who would want to go to school? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Pardon me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you've also done work looking at learning across languages. And I know that a lot of approaches to learning across languages are sort of monolithic. It, it's sort of viewed as one group or one system of approaches. And uh, so I'm curious what you would share about what you've learned in that area as well. I think for me, the big takeaway is similar to kind of the reading intervention takeaway. So, you know, when you have a student that's named a struggling reader or in need of intervention, often that lens is what's used to understand the entirety of that person, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if the student is experiencing difficulty with an assignment, it's like, oh, they're struggling with reading. That's why they're doing, that's why they're struggling, right? It's not that maybe they have, um, I was working with one of my own kids and on a, it was like a college readiness assessment the state of Texas was doing. And they asked about playing Scrabble. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, this is such a culturally specific type of question Mm -hmm. that like if you, the question had nothing to do with Scrabble, but if you understood Scrabble, it made everything easier, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I could imagine someone experiencing difficulty with that and then someone attributing that to, oh, well, they're struggling with reading. And it's like, well, maybe they have no idea what Scrabble is because (laughs) one, people play words with friends now, or maybe they just don't play games involving spelling words, right? In their family or whatever it is. So um, the same thing when it comes to English learners, I think when, especially at the high school level, you receive a file and you say, oh, well, this student's primary language is Spanish or this student's home language is Korean, right? But that often happened, particularly for students that are not immigrant students, students that have been educated in the United States for their entire or most of their educational background. That was a description that worked when they were in kindergarten Mm -hmm. or a description Mm -hmm. that was of the family member who filled out the paper when they were in third grade. And now they're in 11th grade. You know, they've been in U.S. schools for 11 years they haven't necessarily passed any of the um, English language proficiency assessments. And that's because honestly, most English speakers wouldn't pass those assessments because assessment of reading, writing, speaking, you know, and it's a very normative way of understanding those things. And then oftentimes there's the also passing whatever English language arts um, exam there is in that state to be considered proficient in English as well. And then Mm -hmm. some states and districts add on, your math grade or some other thing like that. to And so people get stuck in the categorization, but if they're treated as the nature of their difficulties are because they don't know English, 
then you're missing everything about them. You're missing the things that they know in another language. You're missing what they can do in English. One of my favorite um, studies that I did was of, uh, quote unquote, a student's spelling mistakes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But all of, and those in a testing context, all of those spelling mistakes, you know, are used as evidence that she didn't know English, but all of them reflected her knowledge of English, right? So it was like spelling things like shun, S-H-U-N, you know, all of those things reflected that she understood English. She just wasn't spelling them normatively, right? And so it's not that she didn't know what the word is. She knew all the words. Um, She just wasn't spelling them, you know, in the way that we expected them to be spelled or spelling them from hearing them versus having lots of experiences reading them, right? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a lack of English proficiency. She was actually showing her English proficiency, but it was interpreted as a lack of English proficiency. Uh, Well, and speaking of that, that idea of like a monolith, the idea of English proficiency there's so many threads to that. There's mm-hmm. so many pieces. And I'm also someone who spends their days um, preparing students for these exams that you're talking about. And so when you were talking about English speakers not necessarily passing the exams, yeah, there, there are those nuances. There are those little pieces. It's not just all about are you uh, strong in this area in literacy? It's often can you interpret a question the way that this particular test maker at this particular time would interpret this question. So there, there's definitely a lot there to unpack. Yeah. And in one of my, you know, past lives, I wrote practice test questions. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> in doing that, I learned why they're written so poorly sometimes because so you would, <laughs> this is another topic, but you would get paid $20 for each completed question, Right. Mm -hmm. But if you spent too much time thinking about writing a good question, then you could actually end up getting paid like two or three dollars an hour. Because if you really thought about it, you sent it, they asked you to revise it. So you're kind of like um, pushed to just throw as many questions as possible out there with as many possible answers Mm -hmm. to see how many will stick. And then then you can just make minor corrections. And I'm like, oh, I now I see why all of these questions are horrible because <laughs> the way the the mechanism of writing some of them is just really problematic. And then I was like, okay, I don't want to do this again. So, you know, I've done many yeah. jobs where I'm like, oh, this seems really good. I can do this. And then I'm like, oh, I don't know if I agree with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I spend, of course, a lot of time trying to use high interest literature and that is not necessarily what you find on assessments or assessment practices either (laughs) and also and and honestly being in texas right now with all of the limitations or banning of books and the fear that teachers have it's um depending on what area you're in just even trying to use something that could be interested to students you know Mm -hmm is is frightening and that's something that um i talk a lot in terms i talked about it before with my people with my so right now i'm an associate dean so i'm doing more administrative work than teaching Mm -hmm. but when i first started teaching in texas you know there wasn't um there was city 
certain cities have protection for um, LGBTQ discrimination, but -hmm. it wasn't at a state level. So like one of my students asked me like, well, I'm a lesbian. Should I say that? Because, you know, you always tell student teachers, introduce yourself and your family. Right. 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 And then I was like, well, I can't make that decision for you because if you, they can fire you for being a lesbian, depending on where you are. And I, I'm not going to tell you to stay out of the closet, go in the closet, but I can provide to you all of the options. And now it's getting to be the same way with text choices, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like, there are these limitations and I can just present to you all of the options and then ask you, who do you want to be as an educator? And what risks are you willing to take? Right. And that the response to that question is different for every person because I also always tell them, I can't pay your rent. I don't make enough money for that. <laughs> <laughs> so I my my option here is to say, here are your here are the possibilities. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do at this moment in your career, at this space in your life? And I think that those are questions around tech selection that unfortunately we have to start having more sincerely with future teachers and current teachers. Like we can't shy away from those questions. True. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry, that was a whole different topic. (laughs) No, you're good. There's a lot there to say and a lot there to unpack too. And I hope folks will, will hear that and ask themselves those questions. Um, I have one more official question. Okay. And we can hit anything that we might have missed. Okay. And that is, of course, resources for listeners, um, places that they can go, work that they can check out, uh, as well as continuing questions and ideas that they might want to explore. Yeah, I think um, right now I'm really heartened by a lot of the professional organizations that exist for educators like NCTE. I, um, or it's the National Council of Teachers of English or for English. I always mix it up. I think it's of, of but I could be wrong. Okay. <laughs> There's a preposition there, but I'm not sure. Exactly. Somewhere. <laughs> but in terms of talking about things like book banning and all of these things, there's resources. And I think part of the thing, I think when you're trying to go against the grain is the feelings of isolation. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. community is really important. And so I see um, the resources as being community. And so trying to find other people that are like-minded, even if you might not be surrounded by them in your immediate like vicinity. So the thing that I like about NCTE is, you know, with that membership, the access to um, like teacher focused journals also kind of even without the membership, just access to, position statements and things like that mm-hmm, that you could mm-hmm. use to support what you're doing because oftentimes I find and this in my new role as administrators people will say well research shows this right mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it's like well what research are you using and so it's very helpful when other people have compiled the research for you and you could say well here are some resources and that's one of the reasons why we did that metasynthesis so that people could say here are the resources. Um, <laughs> another place, and I believe that it's, I believe that it's open access. Um, with Kate and Julie, we wrote another um, article about talking about issues of placement <laughs> and how students are placed in reading intervention. That's in Phi Delta Kappa, and I can 
I can link it to you. Um, that way do. you could share it. I will. But um, just one of the things that now as I move into this, that I've been an administrator, I've been a teacher, I've been, a, I'm, you know, a researcher, thinking about how you can make things better within a messed up system because revolutionary change might not happen like at that instant. And so within that article, just ask like certain questions like, well, what are the placement practices and how can we make those clear to students, right? Because oftentimes students don't know how they got placed in something, right? Mm -hmm. But if they know, then maybe they could also say, well, I don't belong here because I didn't, I don't meet this criteria, right? Yeah, I actually yeah. just got put here because I had a space in my schedule or if this is the criteria, then maybe I met it. And now can I be out of this class? You know, so there's mm -hmm. all these things that give the possibility for students and families to have agency, but the transparency of the policies, it's what's necessary. And so many times, you know, with, in terms of like my kids and their schooling, I never tell people like who I am. Um, and <laughs> right. some people don't know that in terms of like my background. So then sometimes I'll have people tell me, well, that's just it. It's not possible to ask questions, right? This is the policy and that's it. And I'm like, I know that's not true. Right. <laughs> but I know that's not true. I have a PhD in educational linguistics, so I can push back. Yeah. But other people, when they're like, oh, this is the policy, that's it. It's like, well, no, it's not. And so I think transparency allows for more equity. And yeah. so even when things are not set up to be fair, I think being clear about why what's happening is happening. Um, so I'm going to say one more thing on the same topic and then, and then I'll stop. But same thing with students that are classified as English learners. Oftentimes they don't know why. They're like, I speak no. English all day, every day. I don't know why. I've In my research, I found that students struggle to differentiate between an English language proficiency test and an English language arts test. Mm -hmm. So they thought that they were taking English language arts tests or practicing for the English language arts test. They didn't realize why they were being assessed in these ways. All of these things, but it's because no one sat down and talked to them about this is what's happening to you mm -hmm. and why. And when I talk to teachers sometimes, and I, I did this too, it's because it's uncomfortable to have a conversation with an English speaking person mm -hmm. and tell them, you know, you're an English learner, you know, even though you speak English all day. And then you have to explain the systems and deal with people's reactions when they don't like that, right? Right, right. And so you try to avoid it by just saying, oh, it's a test for bilingual students, but not all bilingual students take that test, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, I love what you said there, um, several things that you've said there. And every teacher and administrator that I know is about helping kids and empowering kids in some way. I mean, ultimately, that's what people that I know are are after. Um, so I love what you said there about making those policies clear and being willing to answer questions, because ultimately, at the end of the day, hopefully, families, educators, administrators, all feel like they're on the same side. Right. You know? uh, and that is, of course, the side of helping the student, the child, grow in some way, learn in some way, and kind of find out who they are and who they want to be. So um, the, I think that should be our goal. I don't know right. that it, it always is at like systemic levels. Um, but yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned NCTE. The other thing I'll mention about <clears throat> NCTE is there are lots of literacy organizations out there whose membership fees are astronomical. Um, so if you're a teacher who is trying to pay the rent, um, AMLE, NCTE, and several other groups have fairly affordable membership rates to get access to material as well, which is kind of a nice thing. And that way you're not spending hundreds of dollars for conference materials you might not necessarily even go to. Right. Yeah, I think NCT is like $50 a year, mm -hmm. or maybe mm -hmm. less. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think they do. Um, there's even some like online... Like you can go green and get online resources. And I think it might be as cheap as 20 or $30 a year yeah. even. So um, any anything that we've missed in the talk through that you want to make sure to share um, for our listeners? I just think the, even if you, I think just reemphasizing the importance of community mm -hmm. when you're mm -hmm. trying to make change in something that is, like just taken for granted to find other like-minded people like your Facebook page, like all of these spaces where you can find community, even with people who aren't necessarily with you in the moment. Mm -hmm. And also that you don't have to reinvent the wheel because it realizes that other people are having the same conversations and you could use resources that exist to have those conversations. You don't have to, invent it like you're you might not be the first person to come across this difficulty mm -hmm. so how can you build off of what other people are already doing i would say community and then just really transparency because i think transparency in policies and practices not only helps students in the right now but as they get older it also helps them learn to advocate for themselves and systems whether it's the doctor's office or if they go to college like knowing how to say like, well, why does this happen? And that it's okay. And that a why question isn't necessarily an attack on your authority. Mm -hmm. It could be an opportunity to say, you know, I always tell people like, you know, I'll try my best to explain to you why, if you don't like the answer that I give to you, you can always ask somebody above me. It's fine. You know, like mm -hmm. it, it's, it's not an attack on me. I'm just doing what I have with the information that's presented to me you know so Absolutely. this is what it is and so and anything beyond that I'll I'll happily show you the resources to do what you feel like you need to do and not taking that as an attack on your authority and that's really hard mm -hmm. I had to learn <laughs> <laughs> but I think those two things I guess transparency and community I would say yeah I love that I love that and, and using the why questions as an opportunity to share expertise and being willing to say you know I, I don't remember that or I'll find that information out right. uh, is also great and and you're still an authority even if you don't remember everything in the moment yeah and you could also say that's a great question we're not going to talk about this right now in front of the entire classroom right, right. you know like <laughs> just because you asked me why in this moment I, I was like I will give you a response but it might not be in, right now but I hear you and when mm -hmm. you follow up with people then they begin to believe you that you will come back you're not just dismissing them you know absolutely yeah absolutely. Well, I feel like we could do a part two to explore more, but I promised you a brief talk and I appreciate your time. I appreciate your work and uh, excited to share this interview with teachers and people that are out there that are navigating these systems in this world as well. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it.